Welcome to Design Your Life and Business, the podcast for leaders by Bright Mind Consulting Group. We give you the necessary tools to help you become the architect of not just your business, but your life too. I'm your host, Javon Wooden. All right. Hey, Betsy, what's going on? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? It's a little chilly here in Houston, Texas. But... Oh, yeah. I need this to go away. <laughs> I moved down here to get away from all of this, being from Rochester, New York. So we got to get back warm. Yep. I've lived in Houston almost my whole life. And I always say we, we don't live in Houston because of this weather. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't expect this when you come to Houston, right? Nope. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to warm it up today. We're going to make it hot for the guests, for the listeners. And first question I ask every guest is, who are you? Who is Betsy Furley? Well, I am a business owner, software founder. Most importantly, I think I'm a friend and I'm an advocate to every people. Some people think I'm a disability advocate, but I really feel like I am an advocate for people. I'm passionate about people working to their strengths and utilizing all of the strengths that they were given to make this world a better place. Absolutely. And when we met, I met you at a networking event and I was just intrigued by your mission. Your company is called For All Abilities. I want to start from the beginning, right? Can you take us through the journey of your career before you started your company and then what led you to make the pivotal decision of starting this organization? Sure. So I went to a small liberal arts college called Austin College up in Sherman, Texas. Went to high school here in Houston at Lee. It's no longer there. It's there. It's called Wisdom. I went to Austin College up in Sherman, Texas, which is almost to the Oklahoma border. And it's a great school that really teaches you how to think and how to learn. But my concentrations is what they called them at the time were psychology and sociology. I had a double major. Would have had a minor in religion, but we didn't declare minors back then. So with that combination, what I could do was go to grad school. So I started looking for grad schools and I wanted to live in Dallas where most of my friends were living at the time. And so I went there and they said, well, we have this great communication disorders program. You can be a speech pathologist. I didn't know what speech pathologists did, but they explained a little bit about it. You can work with people of all ages who have their speech or language disorders. And I was like, sign me up. So I went to grad school to be a speech therapist. And I did that for many years. I did work with people of all ages. Literally, I worked with premature infants in the neonatal ICU in hospitals, all the way to people at the end of life and everybody in between. And I love my career as a speech therapist. I still do a little bit of speech therapy as well. I love helping people make the best of the talents and the things that they've been given and help them not have to work so hard against their weaknesses. So did that for years and years and years. I have a special love of people with autism and with ADHD and learning differences who just kind of need that extra push to really be able to do work to their best. And I started working. I had done some consulting work in the educational system on using apps within the classroom Mm -hmm. to really help people, again, work to their strengths. I started really getting to do a lot of that because I used the iPad when it first came out. 
I was a very early adopter. And when you're an early adopter for things, people suddenly think you're an expert. So I got to be on a panel at South by Southwest about using apps for people with autism. And then I kind of got my name known about that. Also, at that same conference, a man wandered into my session because he needed a place to sit down. And he really literally just wandered in. It really wasn't of his interest, but it turns out his mom's a speech pathologist and he was the membership director of an organization called ACT, the App Association. It's a trade association in DC for small to mid-sized tech companies. And they advocate for fair tech regulation at the federal government level and at the state level now. And I really intrigued him and he invited me afterwards to come to their fly-in in DC just a few weeks after that to help write, advocate for fair tech regulation. So I was like, okay, I'll go. So at the time, I knew nothing about technology except for the fact I like to use apps. And I knew nothing about federal regulation and policy. So anyway, I went and I met all sorts of people from the tech industry at that fly-in. And it went really well. I talk well to people. I'm a good conversationalist. And Therefore, I'm good at doing things like going to talk to the feds about different topics. This organization trained me on what to say and all about the tech regulation. And now I do that. I still do it several, a couple of times a year. So I went and did that, met all of these amazing people in the tech industry and started kind of putting that in the back of my mind and learning more and more about tech, learning more about start, more and more about startups. And a lot of the people who go to this are app developers. So I was learning about actually the process of apps. I went on with my being a speech pathologist. And then I did a podcast called Your App Lady. I'm no longer producing it, but I believe it's still out there where I talk about how apps can make your life better, not worse. One of the things I believe is that sometimes we can have too many apps. So we have to make sure we know which ones are actually helping us. Um, I started doing this educational consulting. And then a friend of mine who's an employment law attorney said, you know, what industry really needs you it is the workplace, is employment, because there are so many situations where companies don't know the appropriate accommodations to make for people with disabilities. So I started doing that as a consultant, and I realized it was a really an area of crisis as far as I was concerned and still concerned. And it was very frustrating because I was going into these workplaces and meeting these people, usually who had either ADHD or autism, but they're very high functioning in the workplace, got great jobs, usually college educated, usually a young man in his early 20s, kind of right out of school, but on a great career path, except that there were these little problems that they were having in the workplace. And nobody really knew how to solve them. Mm. So it was frustrating to me because I would walk in and I know how to solve those problems. And so I would solve the problem. But in the meantime, they've been failing at their job for so much, so long. And everybody was frustrated. Their managers didn't like them because they were not doing their best work. They weren't happy with themselves because they weren't doing their best work. The business was losing money. It had been a lose-lose proposition for everybody. And then I was brought in and I could fix the problem. But I thought, how many people can I fix this for? And what about all this time that we've lost in the meantime? So I went up to DC to meet with my group of people 
to do some tech advocacy. And we were sitting around dinner one night talking about AI. And I said, hey, I've discovered this problem. Is that an application for AI? And they're like, yes, yes, Betsy, this is your startup. You've got to do it. So I was like, okay, I'll try. So I literally wrote, went to the, it was, I was at a hotel, went to the front desk and was like, hey, can I borrow some paper? Can I have some paper and a pen? And I started kind of writing it, figuring out this assessment, what questions I would want to ask in the algorithm of how that would connect with the idea that eventually I would buy data and be able to make it into an AI tool. So that's how For All Abilities was born. And that we, I developed an assessment um, that's now out there on the market um, and can be used. Unfortunately, there's no data to buy because nobody else is doing this. And so we are collecting our own data. It's really machine learning, but to make it more robust AI, we have to collect a great deal more data. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, literally you wrote out your business on a napkin. I love that. I'm wondering if, have you all looked at Amazon Mechanical Turk to see if they have some data or can get some data for you all? We have not specifically, but everywhere we've looked, no one has collected data or done research or anything on accommodations in the workplace. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm curious. I got some contacts in the University of Houston that may be very interested in this. So yes, talk about it after our our interview. Absolutely. (laughs) And absolutely anybody listening, please connect with me and help me with this because we would like the tool to move much faster than it is, but we can't without the data. Okay, so we know where we need to move. So you've actually founded not one, but two companies because in 2014, I believe you founded a company called Communication Circles. Is that correct? I've had a couple of different therapy companies. I had a therapy company with business partners um, called Advocate Therapy. And then I had a company called Therapy Circles and then Communication Circles. So those were therapy companies. Um, OTPT and speech, and then communication circles was just speech therapy. I also did a lot of consulting under that company. And I've written a few books on the use of apps with people with disabilities that are on Amazon as well. Yeah. So this is great because we at Design Life and Business, we really want to cover, speak more about neurodiversity and just diversity in all aspects of leadership and life. So with For All Abilities and with your mission, what do you feel are some of the misconceptions that are seen out there in society today about people with various disabilities and abilities? I think the biggest misconception is that anybody is normal. The norm is an imaginary box that none of us really fit into, nor do we want to. I think most people think their whole life that they are not normal and they're trying to be more normal. In reality, we all feel that way. I truly believe if we can embrace our own differences, then we can embrace a difference, embrace and understand the differences of other people. But it really starts with ourselves. I think that's the case for inclusion and acceptance of all types of other people in general, not just around disability. With disability and neurodiversity, I think we have such an emphasis on how our educational system is run and what our educational system deems as the most valuable people 
And those are people basically who can sit still, read very well, memorize information and spit it back out in the way that the teacher wants you to spit it back out. Mm -hmm. And people with neurodiversity think differently. I mean, it's the whole meaning of the word. They think differently. And so we are so often trying to pound a square peg into a round hole because of the way our educational system is that we're missing out on all that amazing difference in way of thought that people with neurodiversity can bring to us. And therefore, we're not solving problems in the most efficient way or the best way because we aren't taking into account how all these different ways of thinking. And it really starts in the school system. And our educational system really values people who think in one type of way. And people who think outside that box are left out in the educational system. Then when they get into the workplace, the same thing is valued. The same type of brain is valued. And they also frequently feel really bad about themselves and have really bad issues with self-esteem by the time they get out into the workplace because of their entire childhood, they've been told they're not as good as others. Yeah, that's a great point, a powerful point, because now I must ask, you've consulted a lot of companies, you've done a lot of work on this. What can be done? Say that we're an employer. And we have someone who's neurodiverse. Maybe we don't quite know. Maybe they haven't even been diagnosed. So what can be done from an employee perspective to ensure that we go ahead and we make sure they feel like they belong? We include them. And then also we give them resources that are needed. Absolutely. Well, one thing they can do, of course, is get oral abilities SNAP assessment. So our SNAP assessment, it is a self-assessment. So every employee takes the assessment, not just people who have a diagnosis or want to disclose neurodiversity or a disability. It's for everybody in the workplace. The reason we're passionate about that is because there are so many people who are not diagnosed or who don't want to disclose a disability. And we all have strengths and weaknesses in the way that we work and or learn. And our assessment allows you to self-assess your strengths and weaknesses in the workplace. And then it gives you an automated report that's individualized that gives you ideas of, of actionable steps you can take to be more productive and efficient. So those could be apps or software, hardware, physical products that will help you at work. And then it also gives you a list of your preferences. So SNAP stands for strengths, needs, and preferences. It gives you a list of your preferences at work. So for instance, I like I'm most productive sitting on a sofa. I'm sitting on a sofa now. And I, prior to completing this, designing this tool, even I would often sit at a desk just because that's what everybody else does. And that's what's considered the productive way of doing things. Well, my body is my body and it's different. And I am much more productive on the couch. Wait, how did you find that out? I took my own assessment. During COVID, I had been working, I'd been using a co-working space, primarily freak before COVID, and more because I needed to get out of the house because of my kids and my husband at the time and the dogs and all of that. So I was using a co-working space and I would go back and forth between a desk and a table and couch and whatever comfy spot I could get into. Then when I moved home to work during COVID, I set up a desk just like everybody else did. And I got the standing piece to put on top of my desk because I knew I needed to move around a lot. And I started working at the desk. 
And about six weeks in, and I'd already designed the tool by that time. In fact, it was our beta, our original prototype was ready in December of 2019. So right before COVID is we were starting to beta test when COVID hit. I was about six weeks in to COVID standing at that desk when I was like, wait a minute, Betsy, drink your own Kool-Aid and go sit on the couch or a beanbag. What I did is I got a beanbag chair to put in my office space was like makeshifting like everybody else was. I got a beanbag chair to sit in. So I always knew that about myself, but I didn't honor it about myself even. Lighting is really important to people. You know, that's a preference that has nothing to do with a disability or strengths and weaknesses, but it is a very big preference. Well, sometimes it does with people, but it's also a big preference for people. Do you like natural lighting? Does fluorescent light bother you? I like natural light. I like to sit outside actually a lot when the weather is okay, which here in Houston, we have a lot of those days where we yes. can sit outside because I'm fine in the heat, just not getting the cold. What time of day do you work the best? And so at Four Abilities, you get that information spit back out to you too, as well as a list of resources. And then for the employer, we give them an aggregated de-identified set of data about all of their employees. So it doesn't say a 43-year-old Hispanic man likes blah, blah, blah. It just is out of your workforce. 30% are visual learners, 40% like video best for training, et cetera. So they get an aggregated de-identified report that's really helpful. Um, It also shows them how diverse their workforce really is and how they think, work, and learn. So our tool is fantastic as far as everybody understanding themselves. And again, I truly believe that when we can understand that we have differences and we can embrace our differences and not keep trying to push to be the perfect normal person, then we're more understanding of other people's differences as well. I think that's the same thing you're doing, the DISC assessment or something like that. It's always interesting for other people to understand how you work and how or how you think and how other people think to embrace them. So that's really important. I also believe that leadership in a company should embrace and talk about their differences as they're comfortable. I don't think anybody should be forced to disclose anything, but I think it's important for leadership to acknowledge that they have strengths and weaknesses as well. I think it's very important for HR and management to develop a true sense of trust with the employees. And there's a lot of stigma out there. And a lot of people are terminated for no reason or for crazy reasons. And people are really scared to look different. Everybody is trying to fit in as much as possible. So it's really important to build trust around we as a company understand that everyone is different and we embrace that and that's a value to us. I also believe in good training for supervisors and management on differences, how to notice when someone has ADHD, for example. It's very easy to provide some very inexpensive accommodations or supports for someone with ADHD where then they can really work to their best and they're not held back, but they have to be allowed to use those things. One of the accommodations that I frequently suggest is being having someone able to turn off their camera during a Zoom meeting if they feel more comfortable with that. 
a lot of people with mental health challenges and anxiety, especially, get very anxious about having their camera on all day. And it's a very big fatiguer of people. And there's no reason for somebody to have to have their camera on all day, every day. But yet, many, many people do in the workplace now. And I do set up parameters around that and talk to the company and see what they can live with as far as I'll often say the person turns on their camera when they're speaking or when it's really important for whoever else is speaking to see that someone's listening, see that particular person, turn their camera on to greet everyone, turn their camera off on at the end to say goodbye and some parameters around that. Earbuds are another thing that a lot of companies still don't want employees having earbuds in. Occasionally, that has to do with safety reasons. But a lot of times, it's just because someone up the chain thinks it's rude to have in earbuds. And music helps people concentrate so much. Music can also help people work faster, depending on what they're doing. So, and, Or noise canceling to not be distracted by everybody walking around you. So there are so many things that you can implement But the employee really has to feel like it's they're being valued. Their strengths are being valued and that it's okay for them to have these differences. Otherwise, they're not going to disclose any difference or disability. The employer is not going to know. They're not going to be able to support them. And ultimately, the business is going to lose money and productivity because of that. And the employee is probably eventually going to either lose their job or end up quitting because they don't feel valued. And as we know, it's really expensive. Turnover is very expensive. So every time you have to hire a new employee and train them, it's at least $40,000. And it goes up from there depending on the salary of the person you're hiring. Right. And yeah, and I've been, as of late, talking a lot about the DEIB, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and how it's a a buzzword. But it's not really a lot being done, right, in these organizations, right? They'll say, they'll right. do something to say they are doing it, like start an ERG, which is an employee resource group or BRG, whatever they want to call it, right? But if you look at the numbers, uh, they haven't changed all that much and the hiring practices have not changed. There was a study by Northwestern University that said, I think this one was done in what, 2019, I believe. And over the course of the past 25 plus years, this numbers are the exact same. Right? It has not changed. So the work you're doing is very, very important. It's near and dear to my heart. A question that I have for you. So we know labels are important for some people, right? As they give them the language to help them make sense of themselves, of the world and everything that's going on. When it comes to neurodivergent people, how important is it for them to get diagnosed? And do you also believe that the labels are important for them? It really depends on the person. Many people are diagnosed as adults now Mm -hmm. because their children are diagnosed. And so there seems to be some genetic component to this. So many people are diagnosed as adults. And when I've talked to these people who have gotten diagnosed later in life, and I also should say, so I have dyslexia. I was not diagnosed as a child. I was diagnosed as an adult. And I'm actually a fantastic reader. And so I would have never been diagnosed if I wasn't a speech pathologist working with other people with dyslexia, where suddenly I was like, wait a minute, I do not know my left from my right still to this day. And 
Isn't that interesting, though? I have a master's degree. I can do every a lot of things really, really well. I can't do my left and my right well. Also, if you ask me to give you verbal directions, it's very, very hard for me. Mm. And so now north, south, east, and west, I have no problem with, and I can read a map. But so I'm one of those people that was diagnosed later in life. What people have told me is that it's been a relief for them to be diagnosed. Because it suddenly puts into perspective the things that they've struggled with. And I thought that growing up, I'm a terrible speller. And so growing up, I just thought I wasn't trying hard enough. I wasn't studying my spelling words hard enough. Or it had to do with my effort rather than how my brain is wired. And so many people have told me that they felt a relief when they got a diagnosis. Mm. For other people, I think sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes a label can become a negative for people who might give up or just say, well, I can't do it because I can't be a CEO. I feel like a lot of people, yeah, it becomes a prognosis versus a diagnosis for them. Mm -hmm. It's like once you tell them that, that is their future. Like they become whatever that thing is versus part of it. And I think we have a lot of education to do on that still. And that's one of the places I'm really an advocate. I have another podcast called, called For All Abilities, the podcast. Also, not in projection currently, but hopefully we'll go back into production. And I interview people with disabilities and neurodiversity and their success in the workplace. And I think it's important for people with diagnoses to hear about others, to have mentors to understand that nothing's going to hold you back. In fact, some of the most successful people in our world have ADHD and or autism have neurodiversity because it's also a very good set of skills to be a CEO, to be an entrepreneur, if you can get to that point. The problem is a lot of people get stuck along the way and don't have someone pushing, pushing, pushing. A lot of people who are very successful with neurodiversity had a parent or a teacher, somebody early in their life that really made them feel like, okay, I can do it. Like, I can do this. I'm really smart. My brain just doesn't quite work the same way other people's do. Or they were able to succeed in our educational system, even though their brain didn't quite work that way, because many of them are really, truly brilliant. So they were able to compensate enough to get by, and then their strengths were really seen. Absolutely. And we see that time and time, I mean, all over the history. Right. Even Einstein, they said he was something was wrong with him because his math scores were bad. And then he turns out and, and finds the, the formula of the century of the decade of our lifetimes. Right. So right, because his brain didn't work the same way that other people. Exactly. And goodness. that allows you. That's why diversity in all ways, shapes or form is so important, because it's the innovation. I don't want someone who thinks the same way as I do. I want someone to see the world differently. Because if they see the world differently, they can add or they can completely dispel what I thought was what. Absolutely. Diversity as a whole makes teams so much stronger. Absolutely. And it's proven. We have numbers behind it, right? That the teams with diversity of all ways, shapes, or forms, they are more productive, right? They make less mistakes. They're more innovative and they generate more income per, per person in that group. So- there's, it's a win-win for all. So before we get to our closing questions, I want to ask one more thing. So in what ways do individuals with like neurodiversity, with 
ADHD, autism, dyslexia, what ways do they bring unique strengths to the workplace that can enhance what's going on there? Definitely, like we were just saying, that that variety of thought, that ability to think through a problem in a very different way. They also often have very high level of skills that other people who have more neurotypical brains don't, can't utilize. And that ranges from being able to really multitask very efficiently to people who very can hyper-focus very, very well. I think what the skill that I'm most envious of, of people with neurodiversity, is the ability to hyper-focus. Very hard for me to hyper-focus, and people who can hyper-focus can get so much done. It's amazing how they can get through things. No, then what we can't do is expect someone to both hyper-focus and then also change focus based on when we want them to change focus. That happens a lot in a personal life. People without being diagnosed with neurodiversity have issues with that, right? So, And that, like, again, like we were saying, I mean, that diversity of thought and that being able to really think outside the box and think of things in a very different way. People with autism are often more black and white thinkers, and so they can think of things in a more structured, systematic way without Mm -hmm. as much emotion being involved in it. Not to say, I mean, people with autism have emotion and have empathy and are very interested in connection too, but they can also often think through a problem in a way that's more objective than, for instance, that I can, where I'm more of an emotional thinker and the emotion sometimes clouds the way I think through something. Right. It's more of a rational, logical versus a emotional. Yes. Sense. And that makes perfect sense. Well, I actually misspoke when I said I had one more. Now I got to ask you about future trends. What trends do you see in the integration of neurodiversity into workplace practices? I think I believe more people are being diagnosed, which I think will help the acceptance and decreasing stigma around neurodiversity. I think our organizations are starting to more value diversity of thought. It's been a long time coming in every aspect of DEI. It's been a long time coming. I do think I've seen a change in the tide, especially as far as disability and neurodiversity goes, of people understanding that just because your brain works differently or your body works differently, that that does not mean you're less value than other people are. As the schools also accept neurodiversity and do a better job of integrating people who think differently into the school district or into the educational system. And we're also seeing people who have spent their childhood feeling more valued and therefore they're more likely to go to college or go to a trade school or do something and get out into the, into the workplace feeling better about themselves and therefore striving higher than they have in the past. Absolutely. No, thank you for that. I felt that it was important to Make sure we understand that what was coming, what was on the horizon. So we're not all futurists. So we need that insight and that foresight from the experts. So I'm going to switch to the by design segment where I ask every guest the same three questions. You ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do this, Betsy. What has been the hardest part about designing a life and business you don't need a vacation from? The hardest part is finding the passion and then convincing everybody else in my life that my passion is important and it's 
doesn't take away from my relationships with them, but is an important part of what I contribute to the world. So I guess, I don't know, do you call that work-life balance? Yeah, I think you said it well, your passion, turning your passion into purpose, right? Allowing everyone else to understand that this is not just a passion, actually, it's your calling, it's your purpose, it's why you were put here, um, and it's how you're making a change, how you're being a change maker. So kudos to you. Number two is, what is the best lesson you've learned from your entrepreneurial journey? To keep on trying and to keep on contacting people. Um, I was talking to a colleague friend, friend now um, the other day, one of the people up in D.C. actually. Um, we're looking at for all abilities. We're looking for either a strategic partnership or an acquisition partner because we want a bigger engine behind what we're doing. And we're still passionate about pushing this forward, but we need bigger engine helping us push. So I was talking to him about that and he said, Betsy, you're, it's great because you're shameless and all the, and he goes, and I mean that in the best way possible. He goes, you're not afraid to ask for help and to call up everybody and ask them for help. And I think that is what I've learned as an entrepreneur is that you have to ask for help and you have to be shameless about it and talk about it to everyone you know, because you never know when you're going to find that person that can help you. Absolutely. And people want to help. As we say, closed mouths don't get fed. So you need to talk, speak up. You never know who can do what. So what are three tools or tips that you would recommend? I would recommend people using a timer of some sort to get more productive. I need to do this a little more myself, but it's very efficient and effective to time yourself. There's something called the Pomodoro Technique, and there's an app called Focus To Do. There are several, but I like Focus To Do where you can set a recurring timer. So you can set it to say work for 45 minutes and take a 15 minute break. And then it repeats. And if you know, or you can set it to work for 20 minutes and take a five minute break. That works really well to actually get concentrated and get some stuff done. And I also like to reward myself. So maybe that's tip number two. I like to reward myself. So I'll say like, Once I get this set of work done, I can go get a cup of tea, for instance, if it's something small. Or once I get this book written, I can go buy a new outfit or I set rewards for myself all the time. The other thing that I truly believe in, and I'm sure a lot of people say this, is setting, but I think it can't be said too much, is setting goals. And goal setting is so important. I have been a goal setter since I was a small child. and I set goals for everything. They're not always written down. But for instance, when I had my kids, I have two sons. Um, I have my 20-year-old Sam. He's a freshman in, or a sophomore in college. And then my older son, Henry, would be almost 26. He passed away when he was 22 from epilepsy, from a seizure in the night. And he still is with us all the time and totally superpowering my whole life and my business. When I was raising my kids, I set goals for them all the time of what are we working on now? And it really structured my parenting towards them as far as their development. So when they were really little, okay, he's got five words. Let's start working on really increasing his vocabulary. I set goals every year as not as a resolution, not as a New Year's resolution, but as I I look at my goals, reset them, review them, and I have a word every year. That is the word that helps me theme and structure my year. So what's your word word, this year? 
My word this year is magical. I'm going to get up so I can read the definition. I actually have it printed. Maybe I can show you. I had it printed on a canvas at Walgreens. And it's beautiful or delightful in such a way as to be as to seem removed from everyday life. And that's the canvas. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So I have it sitting here where I can see it every day. And then I collect quotes about magic and being magical. And one of them talks about if you believe in yourself and you believe that's when your life becomes magical. That's magical. <laughs> I like that. Hey, Oliver. Hey, Oliver, you finally made an appearance. Oliver is a dog as you're listening on the <laughs> podcast show. But if you watch it on YouTube, you will see the handsome Oliver. Yes. <laughs> Perfect time. Oliver's an Aussie doodle. He's a rescue. I got him in July and he's such a blessing. They are a joy. Dogs. He is magical. Yeah, he is magical. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. How can okay. people connect with you? The best way to connect with me is either on LinkedIn, but my full name is Betsy Walling Furler. LinkedIn, you can also email me at Betsy at For All Abilities, spelled out F-O-R, the regular way with an S on the end of abilities. So Betsy at ForAllAbilities.com or I'm on Facebook if you want to connect with me and hear all about what Oliver's doing and my yeah. kids and all that stuff. And I'm also on Instagram at, with Betsy Furler and For All Abilities also has Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, Bessie, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for enlightening and educating us on all things for all abilities. And to the listeners, remember to keep ascending and design that life and business you don't need a vacation from. We'll see you soon. Design Your Life and Business, the podcast for leaders, is brought to you by Bright Mind Consulting Group. To find out more about Bright Mind Consulting Group and how you can become the best leader possible, visit brightmindconsultinggroup.com. Make sure you search for Design Your Life and Business on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Bright Mind Consulting Group, we cannot thank you enough for listening.